Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined with Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take research from the equine industry and try and make it accessible for owners and enthusiasts. This week, we have a special guest, Kate Fenner. Kate has ridden and trained and competed in a number of disciplines across Europe, the UK, USA, Asia, and Australia. She has an undergraduate degree in equine science and is completing a PhD at Sydney University. In doing so, she's developed eBark, which is the Equine Behavior Assessment and Research Questionnaire. And over the last number of years, she's developed Can Do Equine, helping riders train their own horses using ethical, evidence-based methods. She's also a council member for the International Society of Equitation Science. Welcome, Kate. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Kate. Hi. So happy you could join us. Yeah, very, very nice of you to have me. So my first question for you, Kate, is what led you into research? What made you decide to start an undergraduate degree and then go on to do your PhD? <laughs> well, it's quite a funny story, actually, Kate. I um, Some years ago, let me see, about, about nine years ago, I read an article by um, Andrew McLean and Paul McGreevy that suggested that the round pen wasn't a very useful tool. And so I thought, oh, well, I don't agree with that. I think it's actually, it depends on what you do with it. But there was, a, there was another article out at the time, which was called The Round Pen Technique, I think. And, um, and that perhaps wasn't the best design of um, experiment. The horses were chased around in a round pen that wasn't actually round. Anyway, it wasn't a very good design. So it wasn't a great example of round pen use, I didn't think. And I think the round pen is actually quite a useful place. So I just write an article um, saying what I thought about the round pen. And I, then I realised, well, actually, Joe Bloggs can't do that. And I actually needed um, a PhD to start writing articles. And so I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll get a PhD. And then I realized, well, you can't just go and get a PhD. You actually need an undergraduate, a suitable undergraduate degree. So <laughs> that <laughs> led me to equine science, um, which I did, and then an honors year, and then enrolling in the PhD. And, you know, I did finally write that article um, with the two authors that had written the one that I, you know, was trying to rebut and and wow. both those authors are my PhD supervisors as well so it's been it's sort of come full circle which is which is fantastic now um that's amazing Kate is that the um article called cut to the chase that's it yep cutting to the chase it's, that is um, a, yep. a good article yep that <laughs> is and I think that is a um source that anyone can uh, get that resource at the Can Do Equine uh, website, CanDoEquine.com. I think you have that paper on there. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then with your PhD, that led you to develop eBark. How did that idea come about, or what kind of inspired you to do that? Well, I really very much wanted to do my PhD with Paul McGreevy. And um, and Andrew McLean, you know, they were the two people that I was very interested in following and had been following for some time. And I really loved the equitation science because I was applying that in my own work with with um, my students. So 
Paul actually had the idea. There, there is a, um, a survey that was developed at, with the University of Pennsylvania called CBARC, which is the canine version. And eBARC has actually been in development for 12 years now. So I came in, you know, after it had already been going for sort of eight years um, and it just, and I was lucky enough just to get in there at the right time. We finalised the, you know, we, we developed the actual survey, the questionnaire, and um, and we got it launched. So, yeah, the timing for me was very good and the eBark project was sort of sitting there waiting for me almost. <laughs> wow. Now, Kate, when they, um, when you guys were putting together the questions, I know one of your um article stated that you did a factor analysis of like 268 behavioral management and training questions. Um, can you tell us in simple terms how you decided which questions to keep and which ones not to keep? Oh, okay. Right. It was a actually called a rotated component analysis but that really doesn't matter same sort of thing so what we're looking for is groups of questions that go together and so if they if they loaded onto a component so you would get sort of let's take behaviors for example um if we look at the boldness category there'll be several questions in there about um whether the horse strongly avoids children or um, strongly avoids dogs or plastic bags and things like this. And, and those sorts of questions tend to go together. So you'll find that the horse that avoids children also avoids dogs or something like that. So okay. if, the, if they group together like that strongly, then they were ma we maintained them and we, we kept all of these, all of the items. Um, and then, and then there were other items that didn't load so well, so that um, didn't sort of go into one of the groupings of factors or components, as we call them. And then we looked at them. We decided whether or not they were important to us um, for research purposes. So crib biting, for example, came up as one that didn't load. But that was obviously a really important thing to know. Um, so we kept those ones as well. There's actually a paper uh, called the eBark Development Paper, which is just in preparation at the moment. I hope will be published within the next week or two. Um, that'll be an open access paper. And that is going to tell you every item on there and um, whether or not it was um, kept for the final version and and why. So that's going to go into all those details for you. Nice. That will kind of explain the last show we talked about my 23-year-old thoroughbred mare that she came up very high on independence, but mm -hmm. a little lower than average for boldness. So um, and yeah. I think that's probably come about as she has aged, but you know, I don't know. So that kind of yeah. will answer that. Yeah, it, it will. It will, Nancy. Um, the, the thing about independence, boldness is, is very much, you know, does the horse um, 
strongly avoid things? Does the horse like, refuse to cross water? Does the horse get distracted easily by unfamiliar sights? Whereas independence is actually more about how the horse behaves when it's taken away from home or when it's alone. Okay. So um, it, you'll, you'll get horses that um, uh, sort of barn sour or buddy sour um, will, will come up and score not very well on independence. Got it. Okay. Well, that explains a lot because I was, I think last show we kind of were tying those two things together and we were like, well, we'll ask you when we interview mm. you. So that helps a lot. That's really so unique and useful to sit back and look at that final graph. And I've done three e-barks. I've got two more to do on my little herd here at home. And it's just fascinating. Terrific. I think that's one of the great things about it. And that's certainly the feedback that I've been getting is that because the graph has those 13 different categories, quite often, if we get a horse that that isn't bold or isn't independent, it can be quite overwhelming, that behaviour, because the behaviour can be quite dangerous. Um, you know, a horse that shies at things and, you know, spins and runs off or the horse that, you know, gets very nervous when you take it out, for example, the horse that isn't independent. Both of those things can really um, jeopardise our safety and, um, mm-hmm. and it can be overwhelming for riders and owners. And so when they do the e-bark, breaks everything down for them so rather than just thinking oh you know the whole thing's too much it's uh, you know this horse is way too much for me they can look at it and say oh that's interesting because you know he scored really well on trainability and rideability perhaps he's very forward going he's easy to stop his human social confidence is great touch sensitivity looks good he's easy to load and he's only really lacking in this independence category he was only really lacking in his non-human social confidence category. And it gives you something to focus on. It gives you something to be proactive about. And I think that that's the the biggest take home from this for me has been it allows riders and owners to focus on the problems and actually help the horse through those problems whilst also appreciating all the wonderful qualities the horse already has. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. That's so true. I think like it was interesting to reflect on this as well, because my mare has notoriously been so difficult to load. And there was a point where she was always a bit of a nervous loader, but she would load if another horse loaded with her. Yes. Um, And then we got to a point where she just got so panicked and she wouldn't load. We managed to get her in for one journey and she fell over in the box. And at that point, it became this huge ordeal. And looking back, I'm like, oh, we just didn't, we didn't train her properly after that because afterwards we would feed her in the box and she would walk in and out of that box. Not a problem. But we never just fed her in the box, took her for a short journey and took her out again. Yeah. You know, it was always, we would feed her in it, feed her in it. The next thing we would try and do it, like a journey that was longer than she was comfortable with. And I look back and I'm like, oh, we wasted so much energy back then. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a hard one, that one as well, because especially if your horses had an accident on the trailer. And I had a client once um, here in Australia who had a horse that had 
gone through the front window, I think it happened when it when it went on the trailer and she was sort of beside herself with anxiety. And I went to do a trailer loading lesson with that horse and I put heart rate monitors on the horse and on the owner um, for the lesson. And I actually taught the lesson. So the horse was fine. The horse, you know, we took 45 minutes, learned to load and unload, learned to stand on the trailer and the, um, the owner watched the whole thing. Um, but the heart rate monitors went on before we got to the trailer. So as we were, you know, getting the horse ready and grooming the horse, they were both wearing their heart rate monitors. And it was astonishing to see the the owner's heart rate was just through the roof until <laughs> yeah. we were about 30 minutes into the lesson. Um, and it just stayed up there. And the horse was absolutely fine. Um, his heart rate went up, you know, for, oh, perhaps for the first five minutes of the lesson. Then he settled right back down. He was absolutely fine. And so we, we've got to be aware of those differences as well. And I think what happens when we get really nervous, especially about something like trailer loading, um, is that we actually handle the horse differently. So, you know, it's sort of nice to think that maybe the horse is picking up on our high heart rate. But it, what's more likely is that we're getting tense. And so we're putting more pressure on the horse. We're not releasing well enough. Um, yeah, so it's it's very interesting, very interesting to see. I, I love trailer loading because it's a it's such a great example of um, the learning theory principles or the ISIS principles of training. Um, and if you break it down and teach the horse how to get on and how to get off at the same time, then it really should be a very simple lesson. I find that most horses don't mind getting on but they're very scared of getting off and that's because they have never really been taught to get off and so you know like UK it's people get the horse on and take it somewhere rather than teach it how to get on and how to get off and so well the biggest problem with trailer loading is horses rush off backwards and yeah. the reason they rush off backwards is because they know they're going to have to get off so they're okay to get on but then they know they're going to have to get off and it's scary getting off. They can't see, it's sloped, it's, they can hurt themselves much more easily getting off. And so they rush off to get that over with. It's a bit like horses that pull back when they're tired. You know, they know that it's going to hurt when they pull back. So they get it over with. They do it as soon as you tie them up, they pull back because they know it's going to happen. Then they just stand there. It's done. It's finished. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's interesting, very interesting. Yeah, I think if I had a heart rate monitor on, you would think I was having a heart attack when we were <laughs> trying to load her the first couple of times. But we did that. We just ended up like stepping back. Like anyone who had been with her when she had a bad experience loading just removed themselves from the equation. Oh, and exactly. we did have success loading her again afterwards when we had like a family friend who had never been around her yeah. just come and load her up. Not oh, a problem. Yeah, very interesting. So, yeah, I think, oh, definitely, it makes such a difference. Like, they 100%, she knew that we were tense and we were panicking. And, mm. yeah, it makes such a difference looking back on it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The um, other question I actually have on that is that I noticed the scale on eBark goes from zero to six. So is there such a thing as the perfect scoring horse? Or could a horse reach six on that scale? No, the... The, a top score is five. 
Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And does some of the population make it to five on those scores? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. and that um so that average is also a moving average. So with every horse that's entered the population average changes. Oh, okay. Um I wanted to ask too, um what do you know your current sample size um, of horses that are in eBark at this current time? Um, we've got well over 2,000, but um, exact numbers I'm not sure. Because that that is such a resource for people doing, you know, research projects, PhDs, thesis, and all that. How would a student or a researcher get access to your survey results yeah so we've got um we've just developed a, a cohort group feature with ebark and that means that any researcher or any veterinarian or any breeder or you know like myself i'm a trainer so i've got a training group we can make a group and so all of my you know, can do people, for example, um, they all register with the can do equine cohort group, which means that when they get their results, they can see their horses' results, the population average, and the can do group average. So they can see how their horse is performing in relation to the other can do members, which is really interesting. And researchers can do the same thing. So if you've got a, a group, that you're maybe you're looking at, you know, horses that are stable 24-7 or something, I don't know, whatever it might be, you can put your research group into a cohort and, um, and then that will keep them separate and you'll be able to get results on, on each of your horses within that group. Great. All, we've already and got some, um, some universities that are, that are starting to, uh, collaborate with us and and use the eBark material. So next year is going to be a big year for us um, with data collection. And so, you know, it'll be a great time next year to sort of tie up with eBark and get your research ideas in there and um, and um, form groups. That's uh, I'm, I'm working on submitting my photos because it was interesting to read uh, once you do your eBark and you sign on, you get your uh, results, um, you can post pictures of your horses or photos and it tells you like to make sure you can see the uh, move the forelock out of the way <laughs> so you can see the facial shape and, and all that. So I thought, oh, there's some research there for, you know, they can do on, you know, different We're patterns. hoping so, yeah. So we're hoping to be able to look at the, the shape of the face um so you know arabs have very dished faces and you know, um clydesdales have rather roman noses and things like that so look <laughs> there's some research to be done there the other one where we're looking at the full front on of the face um we're going to be looking at the worlds mm -hmm. and there's some quite a lot of mythology around what they mean so that that will be interesting as well I think my chestnut thoroughbred has a double whorl. 
you know, between her eyes. I don't know if it's above or below, but I need to check that out more. You know, apparently so. So, the only other question that Kate, did you have another question? Yeah, I've just got one more. Okay. Did you have one as well, Nancy? Um, mine was just for the um, the routine boarder that has a horse um, that they board. But you go first, and then we'll wrap it up with the uh, boarding question. Perfect. So my last question was, last week when me and Nancy discussed this, um, we kind of touched on the fact that, you know, we part of this eBark, owners can do like an exit. Um, survey if they are deciding to sell their horse so that researchers can also look into that and see if behavior plays a role in that Mm. and I'm just wondering what advice you would have to an owner that feels like they've reached that stage of desperation and like they cannot help train their horse right um okay so the exit survey um is exactly what you suggested it's so that we can get an idea of why horses are changing homes um and and it's just a few short questions that ask you you know whether it was because of behavior or you know some other reason so the reason the horse is changing homes or if it's not changing homes you know perhaps the horse is deceased or you know perhaps you um i don't know no longer have the horse for some reason so that removes your horse from your dashboard um i think I think one of the things that we discussed earlier about eBark is that I am hoping for people that are, as you say, in that desperate situation, and I know a lot of people get in that desperate situation because it can be really overwhelming. I'm hoping that eBark in the first instance will break down those behaviours for you so you can see where your horse needs help and therefore you can actually address that. Um, I think it gives people a starting place. I think this goes um, well with, you know, the the boarding horses um, question as well, you know, which it's always hard to have your horse on on livery or at a boarding stable because you're not completely in control of what's going on. So if you're thinking of selling your horse because it's too much, um, you know, it might might very well be the best idea if it's – not safe and the first thing is you've got to be safe but if you can find an evidence-based trainer that is prepared to teach you how to do it I think what happens when we start training a horse is we build this sort of bubble of communication where we're the horse is understanding we we're using combined reinforcement you know pressure release reward and we're communicating with the horse now you can give me your horse and, and I can teach it, you know, whatever it might be that you want it to learn. But when I'm doing that, I'm creating my own bubble of communication. So that horse is going to do that for me because I'm going to ask it in precisely the right way that I taught it. I'm going to release the pressure exactly when it should be released. I'm going to reward the horse with a reward that it's expecting. So it's all going to be very predictable and understandable for the horse. And then I'm going to hand it back to you and you don't know any of that because you didn't see me do it. I didn't explain how I did it and you didn't do it yourself. So your release is going to be slightly different from mine. It might not be as timely. It might not be as full. Um, your reward is going to be slightly different from mine. So it's not going to mean the same thing to the horse. 
And so, you know, horses, we got to remember that they're not machines. They're not computers. We can't install buttons on them. We can train them. We can teach them things. But if you teach a horse something, that creates your bubble. That creates your line of communication. So what I do, it can do. And this is the reason I used to take horses in for training for a living. That's what I did all the time. It's great. You know, you get these horses that can't do anything and you send them home doing all sorts of wonderful things and everybody's terribly happy until a few weeks down the track or a few months down the track, the owners come back and say, oh, the horse is reverting to the old behaviours. The horse has started bucking again or something else. And the problem is, is that I taught the horse. I didn't teach the owner. Um, and the owner continues to teach the horse after the horse goes home. And, and it just, it's not a viable situation. It's, it won't last. It's not sustainable. So what I've found and this is why I went completely online is that the only ethical and sustainable way to do it is to teach people to train their own horses. So that is what I would advise the person who's, you know, come to the end of their um, whatever with their horse and they're thinking that they should sell it. I would say, why don't you learn to train it yourself? Um, because chances are if you do sell it and get another horse, that the behaviour will go in exactly the same way unless you know how to undo it. That's And that's, I think, also good advice for the boarders and the boarding situation is um, I love your website candoequine.com you've got so much information and they're able to sign up for lessons with you virtually and then they can go and apply those lessons to their horse and I know sometimes people aren't happy with the management situation at certain barns. And unfortunately, you know, they can't have a horse at home or they live in the city and, and all that. Um, but when they have to do the boarding route, um, I think can do equine is just a good tool that they can possibly, you know, use to uh, learn the ethical and the science behind learning theory and learning behavior. Mm. I think, yeah, and one of the biggest problems with the with people that have to have their horse at a boarding barn is that they don't always know what goes on when they're not there. And, mm -hmm. you know, horses, we know horses love predictability and that's why, you know, you build your own bubble when you train your own horse. Um, and you're also, when you're doing that, you're always being proactive. And I think that's really important with your horse. So whether you're leading it from the stable to the paddock, um, be proactive, be teaching it something. Because if you're not, then you become reactive. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you become reactive, you're, you, you're using punishment instead of reinforcement. And Punishment for the horse or correction, as we like to call it, because it sounds so much nicer, but it's the same thing. Um, it, anything that you do that tries to make a behavior less likely to happen in the future is punishment. So it might and you might just, you know, let's say you want the horse to stand still and the horse takes a step forward and you tap it on the cannon bone with your whip. 
that's punishment. You don't have to hit it over the head with a two by four to make it punishment. It has nothing to do with, with the severity. All it has to do with is what you want the behavior, whether you want the behavior to happen more in the future or less in the future. If you want the behavior to happen more in the future, you're using reinforcement. So the horse does the behavior and then you reinforce it in some way. You release pressure or you reward the horse in some way. If you want the behavior to happen less often, you do something that is likely to make the behavior happen less. And that's punishment. So punishment is really unpredictable for a horse because the horse doesn't know it's done anything wrong. And so the punishment sort of comes out of nowhere, whereas reinforcement once you teach the horse about combined reinforcement, the horse is always looking for the right answer. The horse is always looking to release pressure, to get that release or that reward. Um, and so it keeps you proactive. So what happens, I think, quite often with boarding facilities is that the horse, when it's with its owner, it's great because everything is combined reinforcement. The horse understands and the horse is learning really good, safe patterns and and then when you know the fellow who cleans out the stable or whoever it is that takes the horse out or rugs the horse or whatever it is you know uses punishment um we're not even probably even thinking about it but you know the horse goes to bite or something and slaps it on the nose um the horse lags behind when he's leading gives it a jerk on the rein anything like that um it's punishment so it makes the horse's life unpredictable mm-hmm. so i think that it's that difference that happens at, at boarding places. So we need to understand what their methods are, what their training methods are, and do they even know what they are? Do they understand the difference? Because I think for your horse's um, stability, that that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And when do you think if a person has just recently moved to a, a boarding facility, is there a transition time before a person uh, can say this isn't the barn for me or should they immediately you know just realize the management isn't according to their theories or what they do with the horse or what they want I should say what should be their guidelines for those listeners we have that that are forced to have to board their horse I think there's there's always going to be some settling in time for the horse. Um, and so you have to take that into account. I moved um, six horses, um, 1,600 kilometres um, three years ago, and they took anywhere between one month and six months to actually a year, one of them, to settle in. So it, it just depends a bit on the horse. But having said that, I think, a lot of us also get that sort of white coat syndrome, you know, the barn owner, you know, he's, he's a horse trainer and he's been around horses all his life and he knows everything. And I know nothing because I'm really just a beginner. And, but be careful of that because, you know, a lot of training at the moment is sort of myth and mystery and folklore and tradition and, and not evidence-based. Um, so trust yourself. You know, you are going to know whether they're doing the right thing or not. And, and you know, if it smells like a fish, it's probably a fish. So I would, <laughs> I would really trust my instincts. And it's very tempting not to, particularly 
if you're not as experienced as other people in the barn or as the barn owner. If you feel that they're not doing the right thing by your horse um, and you can't change the way they're doing it, then then it's time to go. Yeah. Well, that's that's good advice and probably a good place to stop. Even though I could talk to you for hours, I'm going <laughs> to tell everyone go to the CanDoEquine.com website and she's got so much information on there. And then, um, you know, see if maybe some of the classes uh, wouldn't be something um, maybe you're looking for at this point in time. Terrific. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for spending so much time with us. And it's just been wonderful. Thank you. And we look forward to reading that development paper as well for eBark. That'll be interesting to see. Fantastic. Yep. I'll be sure to send it to you. Oh. All right. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Kate. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care.